Welcome to the LSE and the annual lecture of the British Journal of Sociology. We've been running this lecture series for some years now and this year I'm delighted to welcome Bev Skeggs as our speaker. Before I introduce Bev, I'd like to make a few announcements. There will be a reception immediately after the lecture in the foyer upstairs. Please come along for a glass of something and while you're there, visit the journal's stand. The BGS has been going from strength to strength in recent years. For those of you that measure such things or are looking to publish your own work in an influential outlet, the journal's impact factor now stands at 1.684, which I assure you is very high. <laughs> As you visit the BGS stand during reception, you'll also find copies of Bev Skegg's books for sale. Bev is a member of the sociology department at Goldsmiths, London. She is currently, or was, their head of department until very recently. She is soon to be, or is now, an ESRC professorial fellow, working on a project called A Sociology of Value and Values. Her publications include The Media from 1992, Feminist Cultural Theory 1995, Formations of Class and Gender Becoming Respectable 1997, Transformations Thinking Through Feminism 2000, Class Self Culture 2004, Sexuality and the Politics of Violence and Safety 2004, Feminism After Bourdieu 2004, The Politics of Imagination 2011, Reality TV and Class 2011, and finally, Reacting to Reality Television, Audience, Performance and Value 2012. As if that wasn't enough to keep her busy, Bev currently is the co-managing editor of the Sociological Review. The title of her talk today is Values Beyond Value. Is there anything beyond the logic of capital? For those of you that like to tweet, the Twitter hashtag for the event is LSE Capital. So, now that I've said all of that, will you please welcome, join me in welcoming Bev Skeggs. Wow, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, I'm really delighted to be invited by the British Journal of Sociology and I'm especially grateful to Jackie for all her work that's gone into organising this. Um, really a lot of work actually. So I'm going to try and get through quite a lot of material but this is particularly for Kirsty who handed in, Christy who handed in a PhD this morning, my argument is. So it can be summed up in. <laughs> In, in a very short kind of uh, Guardian John Cray style, but I want to explain quite a few things. So, I want to say I'm coming at it from three different temporalities. The present, where I think we're in a horrific moment of market populism, or where the logic of capital, which is to intervene in everywhere uh, and make money or convert everything into a commodity or generate relationships for exchange where everything has been subsumed as if 
God. And Tom Frank wrote the book, I think the most important <coughs> book on this, in the 1990s, but this process was identified earlier on at the beginnings of the Thatcherism by Stuart Hall. So we are in market popularism, the logic of capital. We've seen Mr. Homo Academicus writ large across our, well everywhere in fact, through the discipline of economics and um, in government policy. All of the market populism assumes that we are the subjects of capital and we internalise its imperatives, an argument that I will be taking apart as I go along. Um, <clears throat> so the present, I think, is kind of... Um, well, yeah, if the market is God, where do we go? The next uh, temporality is my past, as, as it's a long one, um, and I've been writing about things like respectability, and I realised, been writing about values and values for a long time, although I didn't realise that's what I was actually doing, um, I have been doing research projects, as were named, a uh, project on respectability, which if you think about it, has that double um, value values and you cannot participate in the labour market if you are not respectable usually. So there's a kind of a doubling that we will see kind of going on throughout the paper occurring there. Then of course the reality TV project that was all about performing one's lack of value and then the project with Les on sexuality and violence which was looking at how uh, marginalised identities were able to occupy space and safety. And I want to show how defending symbolic devaluation, those groups that are subject to horrific devaluation, actually puts limits on uh, economic realisation. And then I'm moving into the future, which is fantastic, having been head of department for three years. And now I've got an ESRC fellowship. Thank you, ESRC. I am so grateful. Um, which is literally called the Sociology of Values and Values. Um, so I'm going to kind of explore this area through two different domains. So I'll explain where I'm going. So the structure of the paper will work through the language of values, domain distinctions, how persons and personhood are constructed through this, the where and what of value, and I call value as a sweaty concept because uh, it's all about labour, and incursions of capital logic and critique, and then I hopefully will end on ethical practice and effective attachments. Um, there is uh, a huge paper here um, that will be turned into a paper for the BJS. I know I have a word limit and it has to be cut down. And as you will see as I go through, I did get rather excited um, about all the different domains and how to explain it all, and did realise that I was kind of including quite a lot in it. So I will be skipping through things, but it will get developed formally and you will be able to read all the references um, at one point. I should say that the um, fellowship that I've just started is going to look at two areas that highlight the duality of value and values. One is prosperity theology, um, where literally praying should bring prosperity in the future. Um, and the second one is Facebook. Facebook has made, what is it, £106 billion from monetizing friendships. <laughs> um, so we need to, you know, there's, there's a serious incursion going on there, I'd say, but we're going to look and try and work out what actually happens to friendships when this monetization occurs. What remains? Is there anything beyond? So what does it actually do? So that's where I'm, I'm going. Um, okay, so brief history, and it's 
trying to get through this, but to get, again, I'll send you off into some references if you need to um, know them. The language of values and values. All the way through, it's a very slippery, slippery connection. It's a dualism. Often we don't know what is value and what are values. It's dialogic. It's always referring to each other. And it's recursive. It keeps speaking back to itself. Really, in, in, right from the very, very start. And right from the earliest definitions, property and selfhood are always connected through propriety. The fact that we've come to one market under God where Mr. Homo Academicus reigns and values seem to have disappeared suggests to me that there's been a kind of expansion of one domain at the expense of the other. And part of my aim is to rescue the other and say you cannot just think in singularity around this topic. It's very important to think what is left. So we begin with Dewey's theory of valuation, which I think is pretty critical, where he looks, and there's some lovely stuff, where he looks at the multiple meanings in ordinary speech. So we have praise, prize, and price are all derived from the same Latin word, pretiari. Who speaks Latin? Yeah. Is that the right pronunciation? Pretiari. Pretiari, right. Um, and also, esteem and estimate have a common root, and appreciate and appraise are usually used interchangeably. We also have words that are very interesting. Dear is still used as equivalent mm. to precious and costly, and the term spent has a fantastic history, especially in understandings of sexual economies. There's a brilliant book called The Sexual Fix by Stephen Heath from sometime in the 80s that kind of explains that language in great detail. So very kind of uh, slippery, slippery movement between those different economies. There's another very interesting book by Gary Day where he looks at how the language of psychoanalysis and the language of Marxism developed again in relation to each other. So terms like investment and fetish became quite critical to both, were the history behind both, but were used in radically different ways. Um, there's a similar um, thing going on around the economy, and there's a fantastic, I'm going to keep going, there's a fantastic book, but they are, I wouldn't be citing them if they weren't fantastic. Uh, Mary Poovey's work on the history of the social body, what do we think of as a social body, looks at how the term economy came into effect. And initially, it was about the management of the household. It's really interesting that as the term develops, the household disappears entirely. And I'll kind of show how that happened. But she argues, and it's a very important point, she argues that what happens is a very specific rationality, calculation, and the public came to organise what we knew, what we now know as the economy. And then there's disciplinary battles in the establishment of uh, economics by sociology over what can be the territory of the one and the, not the territory of the other. And interestingly, the domain separation usually occurs via rationality. And there's some great stuff by, again, I'm going to cite a, a very important book, uh, James Thompson on models of value, who looks at the history of the English novel um, and shows how um, political economy developed in one domain 
uh, against the domain of the novel which was meant to be about affect and romance. What's interesting in this domain distinction is everything that shouldn't be uh, in political economy was located in romance. But interestingly, we know, if we've read Gissing, Trollope or Jane Austen as the best example, that um, romance was all about calculation in those novels. Why did I marry him? Why should I marry him? It was incredible calculation. But what's very significant in this distinction, there's an attempt to separate the public from the private, there's an attempt to separate the rational from the irrational, there's an attempt to claim very particular ways of becoming a rational economic subject, is that these are constituted distinctions. They don't just occur separately. One is necessary to the other. You could say that political economy has to, had to park everything it didn't want in the domain of romance, in the domain of gender as well. Of course, that which was not rational, calculative, economic and sensible and public was women's domain. And what's interesting, in this we see those different domains developing and we see them being consolidated but interestingly the calculation that is the method by which they both proceed and I, I found this recently I couldn't believe it, it was like a gift <laughs> um, and it's just come out and it's published by Duke University Press and this guy attempts to show how really Jane Austen was a game theorist <laughs> if that isn't contagion I don't know what is so We have these domains developing. We also have disputes between political economy and radical economy. And we have disputes that get consolidated much later between economics and sociology. Uh, David Stark defines what he calls a Parsonian pact, whereby sociology allows economics to have all the calculative, mathematical, algorithmic methods and it focuses instead on systems and social relations. Now that division you could argue occurred much much earlier in the UK when political economy became a very specific domain in itself and, and the big arguments were between different types of political economy. Now I did want to kind of do this one by one because you'll have all read to the bottom before I get there but anyway we have these domain distinctions and they are gendered what we also have um, that's going on at a similar time is the development of persons. What is it to be a person? Now, we've had the domain of economics developing and there's a long history here and historians will be horrified but I've written quite a lot on the history in great detail elsewhere. Um, but I'm just kind of skipping through this. What I want to look at now is how persons are developed in relation to these different domains. Obviously women are meant to be the romantic, effective ones that do a bit of, calculate, bit of calculating and men are meant to be Mr. Homo Academicus or as our show Labour. But what's interesting is that these domains develop around and with the social contract which in Britain in the 17th century was developing through a very particular form of liberalism consolidated in the 18th century and that was informing how different people were seen to have value. So what did it mean to be a person with value? And I want to look here at very different traditions. 
First of all, there was the tradition of colonialism. The European colonists, and again there's a huge, huge history on this, the European colonists who went into West Africa, and there's fantastic stuff on the definition of the fetish, which both Marx and Freud then develop, but they're going to West Africa, and there's lots of writings that, forgotten how to pronounce it, Pietz defines, and he looks at how uh, the West Africans were defined as primitive against the civilised, um, superior colonialists, and they were defined as primitive precisely because they attached affective value to objects. The totem is the best example of this. They see the totem as magical. It has affects, it has memories, it carries things. Whereas the European colonists write about how this is a very weird association to objects because objects and things, according to them, should only be thought of in terms of exchange that which can accrue a value through exchange. So there's this big history of how this difference occurs between people who relate to things as effective and people who relate to things as commerce, as trade. And it's not just about objects. If we look at the history of slavery, if we look at the history of colonialism, it's, just, it's not just objects that are being exchanged. People are being exchanged as if they are things, and as if they have no affects, as if they don't matter. There's a huge amount of delegitimation that goes into making people, slaves, appear as if they are just objects of commerce. Very important history that needs to be brought into our understanding of the English social contract and how it developed. The social contract becomes consolidated around the idea of the possessive individual. <coughs> and there'll be legal theorists here, Les, who can do much more on this than I can. Um, but what's key, and the only element I'm going to pull out of this, and there is a whole chapter on this in a book, um, the only element that I want to draw attention to is that the key of the English social contract was based on and for people who could not imagine themselves as objects of exchange, i.e. they couldn't imagine themselves as slaves, they couldn't be traded, they weren't commerce. They were the ones who did the buying, the selling and the exchange. It was, of course, as Carol Pateman has pointed out in a fantastic book on the social contract, that it was women, of course, um, and the working class that were excluded from becoming a person in the social contract through traditional liberal theory. This is really, 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 really important because traditional liberalism has this model of a person that is developed from understandings of colonialism and from understandings of gendered domains about who can and who can not be traded. Very important. Um, and so we have to think about if neoliberal theories, which are kind of proliferating in the market populism of today, if neoliberal theories assume a theory of the subject, they are usually drawing reference to this history of liberalism but often they don't recognise that they are doing so. So those are two particular trajectories, very important trajectories and often kind of missed um, or not noticed or purposefully excluded. The other history that I want to draw attention to that I think is very important, and I always keep saying it's important, I wouldn't be talking about it if I didn't think it was important, so sorry, um, 
is that Lisa Blackman's work on the constitution of the European. This isn't a colonialist who goes out and finds people who are strange. This is a colonialist. This is the European at home. And again, lots of historical writings uh, about how the European uh, bourgeoisie, as it comes into effect, defines itself against the mass. And it does this by claiming interiority. It does this by using the science of psychology. And there's some great stuff by uh, Fist, he's called. Um, I'm trying to think of all the references. A lot, again, I've written about this um, elsewhere, but there's lots and lots of um, history of ideas around psychology that show that the mass had to be constituted as a mass. They weren't talked about as the working class or women or ever or race. They were just talked about the mass and the mass was that which could not have the rationality, the reflexivity and the interiority that was necessary for property ownership. So psychology became incredibly important to legitimating who could be a good subject and a proper person. These trajectories come together and they, they pull into the present and we can see them in a lot of, as I'll show in a lot of our current theories. The other thing which has a very long history and it kind of fits but it just pulls it all together is the idea of the fit and proper person. And you may have seen this when the FA was disputing who could own a football club recently. Um, but interestingly, the idea, the legal idea of the fit and proper person comes from the 17th century law, where, um, which is brought in the 18th century to a man called Lascelles, who was the bit biggest British slaveholder. Um, we can find who there's a whole um, archive dedicated to him. And there was an assessment made in British law about could he be a fit and proper person in order to own slaves. So every time you see that concept being, you know, uh, used in the media about who can own football clubs, think about its history. Now what's key again, we've had domain distinctions and they're constitutively limited, as in one is necessary for the other to exist. Here we also have constitutive limits. The proper person is dependent upon the mass, it's dependent upon those who associate affects to objects and it's dependent upon those who do not see themselves as property. So these are all limits and exclusions. Now what I also want, and I'm still going into history and I'm thinking, oh goodness. Could you speak more closely to the microphone? Hold on, Sheep, I take it off. Is this one on? I think it's this one. I'll hold it. Thank you very Is that better? Sorry. Um, so, so value, the idea of value, very, very quickly going through this one, began in 1740 with John Locke, it seemed to be the first theory of value, but I think if you look closely you'll see it's a theory of property, but what he does very importantly is put labour on the agenda. Labour is then taken in two different directions by uh, Adam Smith, becomes classical political economy, what we have now developed in uh, economics the um, rational lecture and, the, and Mr. Homo academicus and then Marx in different directions. Now I'm really now going to speed through the Marxist theory of value um, and I'm going to use this to build upon later. So this is right and I know there's going to be loads of people, Sarah, in the audience are going to go, oh, you can't do this this quickly. <laughs> right, so <laughs> for Marx, 
labour is fundamental. It is the source of all capital. Capital is dead labour, labour is living labour. The capital-labour relationship is the basis of all so social relations. And for Marx, value is not a thing. It's not something that can be quantified or counted. It's a relationship. And the worker is forced to enter this relationship. They have to sell their labour to live. They have no choice. And in Capital, read Capital, it's a great read. Uh, in Capital, he kind of goes through all the laws and the vagabonds and the branding and everything that happens to people who don't sell their labour. And then... Um, Marx points out, and again, key to new neoliberal theories, but Marx points out that the, the great myth of liberalism is that all people are free to exchange. In fact, they're not. Some people have to exchange just in order to live. Um, and some people don't think of themselves as having to exchange the proper person. All labour is converted into value, and that's as he develops his theories, the worker becomes a commodity, the most wretched of commodities. And then via the commodity fetish, the fetish is where labour is hidden, for Freud it's where sex is hidden, but the, the labour is hidden, and the exchange value of commodities becomes the social relation. We're all commodified, basically, is the argument of this. Labour is symbolically devalued, whilst also the source of labour and the structure of feeling is alienation. There will be... Um, PowerPoints if anybody wants it. So just to very quickly recap, because that is really about a year's worth of uh, analysis, just put into one PowerPoint. Um, so what we've seen is value, how value was located, discursively institutionalised through monetary transactions how the subject is shaped of this process, and I think Mr. Homo Economicus is probably the best example, that he was not allocated to the sphere of values. He was always located with value. Um, the values are always associated with primitive women, the improper, and the effective and sentimental dispositions, often in need of civilization. And then underpinning all this is the fetishization of labor, hiding the labor, and then those located within the sphere of values with only their label to sell are the constitutive limit. So, I got a bit carried away now, and I'm really going to speed through these. I got a bit carried away because I started looking at different areas, looking at how capital um, pervades, invades, and becomes, you know, um, so completely fundamental to every area. Um, and I just did, as you see, I'm going to really, really flick through them, but I will go back to them if you want to ask me questions on them. Um, interestingly, the logic of capital is incredibly effective in the area of big data, as you can imagine. It's about capitalisation, it's about uh, understanding new methods of accruing value, it's about speed and time, it's about capitalising upon free labour, all sorts of things are going on in the world of big, da big data. And Celia Lurie's work is really, really important around this. She looks at how nearly everything has been capitalised upon, sentiments, affects, influence, and she looks at how this is recursive, how it's productive, how it produces new forms, new methods, new ideas, and in some cases, new publics and new ethics. So in a way, I think... Um, big data is probably the best example of where capital has been able to really, really mobilise. And there's a fantastic BBC programme on how big data analysts are now trying to use quantum mechanics so that they can do calculations simultaneously. Roger, you can probably explain all this. But it's like, wow, they're, they're going to make it even faster. Um, but yeah, and there's the great work by Mackenzie on the, is it the nanosecond, the, the millionth second that makes the difference between a tra financial transaction? 
Really, really interesting stuff. But I want to argue, I'm looking at the improper, I'm looking at that domain where everything has been parked because that really, really complicates capital. It really produces all these value chains that are very, very difficult to explain. It provides blocks, it provides limits, and it stops. And if we take the, the kind of Deleuzean model of, you know, there's lines of flight and they're moving in and they're going to eat up everything that they can find and turn everybody out as a commodity, um, what we see, I think, in some of these areas that I'm going to go through are very, very interesting complications. The lines of flight are blocked, but not always for long, but maybe temporarily. So caring, caring is one of the most interesting ones, I think, because caring is a state responsibility. It's a partially privatised industry. And capital is incredibly clever on this front, as we've seen. The struggles are between capital and the state. Capital tries to make the state pay for the reproduction of labour. Without the reproduction of labour, all women's work, without that, there would be no, there literally would be no workers. If women didn't go into labour, there'd be no workers. So it's very important that capital makes the state pay. And what we've seen, what you can do, you can do a kind of history of this. You can do a history of the fight between them, who's making who pay and how. But I think we are in a moment where um, capital is incredibly clever. Nobody would ever doubt that. They have, you know, can afford the best people. But um, they are really, really clever. And what they've learned to do is this privatised industry, as it makes the state pay at the moment. And it's making the state pay, but then the state says, oh, we'll privatise this and you can make profit from it at the same time. So we see all these privatised health companies. Now, what's also significant is that there's been a recent report. The caring economy in the UK is totally dependent on unpaid carers. So capital is not just making the state pay, everybody's giving their labour for free. And this report estimates that there are 6 million unpaid carers in the UK and the estimated value of their labour is 119 billion. The total cost of the NHS is only, nine, only uh, is 98 billion. So I think it's quite significant that you have the state paying and you have unpaid labour. You also have the privatisation of caring companies, Southern Cross, do people remember that? Um, which kind of fell apart in 2011, collapsed with £230 million of debt. And a recent report, Company Watch, we're not talking a left-wing think tank here, um, found 4,872 private firms, of which 1,449 were rated as financially vulnerable and 700 as zombie companies with debts of £270 million. This is a problem for capital. Although there's been some flipping where private equity companies have come in, turned them around, taken the profits and run, somebody still has to pay the state. So what's interesting is caring occurs, the reproduction of capital occurs on a daily basis through all these different capital forms, through unpaid labour, through cheap labour, through the state providing it. But it's difficult to divorce caring for and caring about. There's quite a gift there in a way to capital. Now, I don't want to go on with this, so this is just to say there's a very similar debate going on, and there's experts in the audience, uh, around domestic labour. Domestic labour has a similar kind of value chain of connection, reliant on unpaid labour, absolutely, completely uh, state dependent. But again, it kind of goes into that. The other area, which was predicted by Shalumas Firestone in the 1970s, is biocapital. There isn't a single aspect of your body that is unlikely to be open to profit and monetisation. But 
even though, and this is going to be, I couldn't believe, anyway, I'll say this at the end, Nobel no, notice, Nobel Prize winning economist Gary Becker, um, who talks about Mr. and Mr. Homo heteroeconomicus, actually, I think, um, he thinks that we should be able to um, privatise and monetize every single aspect of childcare, marriage, domestic labour. And he's, you can see that happening. And then I, I only found this guy recently, and he's really good. Uh, well, as in an ironic sort of good. Judge Richard Posner, who thinks we should have a free market in babies, as unrestricted choices about what to trade, that represents individual freedom, extending the logic of one pound, one vote. You can follow all these references up. I'm just kind of, so you can see where I went a bit nuts because I kept finding this stuff and thinking I can't believe somebody got a Nobel, Pe uh, Nobel Prize for this. Um, but yeah, you couldn't make it up. But what happens is that these areas that should be opened out to the one market under God aren't. They're not completely encroached upon. There are moral limits, there are legal limits. Um, and then um, our reality TV project, which I thought, again, is just like this is so clever, capital makes money out of suffering and impropriety. It makes people perform their lack of value in order to extract value. But what was interesting, in this, our audiences who watched the programmes actually responded in a highly critical way. They weren't kind of just the passive consumers that is assumed. There's another debate around, I am, I really am, I did go a bit nuts. So I am, I'm just really flicking through these. Uh, multicultural profit, great debate by Zizek says, yeah, multiculturalism's a gift to capital because it opens out markets that, that can then be capitalised upon. But what I want to argue, that it does, of course it does. It's like pornography, feminism, you can open out anything, you can exploit anything, you can turn anything into monetisation, but there is a lot beyond it. And then Roger, academic performance and measurements. And I just thought, because we are, you know, academics, this is what we're me measured by at the moment. Now, for those Marxist theorists in the room, I know that academia is not monetized. It's a very different relationship to capital, and I can, we can have that uh, question if you want. But it still is productive of a particular exchange relation and a financial transaction because we are funded by Hefke and the government. But look, see what we're measured by. The AR index, the audience factor, the article influence, the author superiority in you know, just keeps going on. Um, and it's going to go on, and it's going, I mean, the, the market companies that are being developed to measure us further and further and further and detect our scores are quite phenomenal. Robert Rocek from Sage is really, really on to it, as is Roger, um, who kind of, you know, uh, works out what our ranking is and all that. So we are subject to these measurements. But I want to argue, do we do our jobs just because of this? Do we get caught up in it? Even those of us who have to do the ref and employ people, are they a five-star researcher? I'm not sure whether we do get caught up in it. Are there limits to that? It's a, a question that's open. I think we have lots of other values as academics, many more values. And I think they come back and they keep pushing at that area and we don't take it that seriously. Then, of course, for those of you who know this area, you can brand yourself um, the new economy guru. Uh, who opened out the whole idea of we are CEOs of our own companies. The self-help in self industry is phenomenal and the self-branding industry is phenomenal. So, is commodity logic? The genius of capital is 
that. It enables us to do our own self-exploitation. It's totally reliant on lots of our unpaid labour. We train ourselves in the tradition of the entrepreneurial self and we do our own self-maintenance so that it can exploit us more effectively. But is it just the logic of capital? Are we just commodities? And there are very persuasive theories that suggest we are. Frankfurt School, Adorno, Marcuse, Lukács, Horkheimer, and there's lots of kind of what I'd argue the more banal reductionist versions of how commodities shape identities, which completely forget that most of us work and labour is still incredibly significant. But Marilyn Strathern, who I do think is one of the most brilliant uh, people in the world, Marilyn Strathern fires a warning. She criticises apodurae of this commodity logic being applied to everything. And she says, we can't, if we do that, we're trapped in it, we're caught in it. And she argues reductionism of reducing everything to a monetary transaction traps us in this logic. And I think there's an old paper, 1973, by Raymond Williams, where he draws upon Gramsci and says there are always temporal lags, there are always emergent and residual forms that escape the dynamic of capital. Always. So what happens? Is there anything beyond, which was the question of the title? Here I think we come to values as sedimented valuations. And what Andrew Sayer defines as attitudes or dispositions which we come to regard as justified. Now, I think some of the theories around values do create completely separate domains. They kind of exist in the world of moral philosophy or they exist in the world of moral economy. And I think it's beyond the moral. It's much more effusive. It's within culture. It's within a cultural economy. So I'm not totally located in that area. And I think a lot of them kind of don't pay attention to representation and practice. And the dominant narratives that shape our lives, that are institutionalised and are an incredibly powerful, heteronormativity, romance, marriage, maternity, paternity. So I think we need to look at how symbolic value is allocated to values, the good or the bad person, and how that happens through both legal and social contract. So I think if we work with Marilyn Strathern's idea that values and values are produced through relationships, we need to be able to identify different value practices. You can see all those different distinctions, all those constituted boundary markers I'm now pulling together and saying we need to have a composite picture of how a person is distributed in circuits of values which are economic, symbolic and cultural. And they express values. And the thing that I think is really, really important is how can we flourish if all our actions are produced through capital imperatives? How can we be academics if all we were just worried about our impact and our measurement all the time? We wouldn't be able to do it. And as David Graeber has pointed out in all his brilliant work, if every action was a transaction of exchange, nothing would work, not even capitalism. It, it's impossible to kind of operate on that instrumental basis. And so then I started getting a bit crazy again, so I've kind of consolidated this down because I started looking at all the research, and a lot of it is anthropological, that monitors or charts or describes lots of areas where values are incredibly important. Now, Vic and I did a project on um, how people 
entered into value struggles through judgment and injustice. So we saw how caring, selflessness, anti-cruelty, anti-greed and anti-instrumental were produced by an understanding of injustice where values are practiced and expressed constantly through their experience of living injustice. So the antis are very, very key in all this. These anti-instrumentalism or anti-inequality were produced in response to living the conditions of capital, but not necessarily um, absorbing them or internalizing them as part of the subjectivity. And I put the um, reference in there because it's the British Journal of Sociology. <laughs> Concern for others, affection, sharing and mutuality is a practice evident even in big data, WIFAC, um, and in open source software and certainly in the development and in the development of all sorts of other areas. Charity, altruism, selflessness and gratuitous behaviour generate what Boltanski calls a regime of peace and love. And there's some fantastic work by Saba Madud where she looks at how a pedagogy of support for women is developed through politics of piety. Similarly, Kathleen Stewart's great ethnography on the um, Appalachian communities shows how a whole community forms itself through just talk. Actually, understanding the conditions of inequality that they live and speaking against it, working out the moral relationships between a community where they support each other, where fairness and kindness glues people together. And that's just to name a few. I could have had another like eight PowerPoint slides here, but I did contain myself, and it's not in the paper, and I'll just put lots of references in, I promise. And what really matters to us is other people. Anybody who's done ethnography, as I have for years and years and years, is we know that it's other people that are significant. It's not the relationships of exchange, it's not really the things we own, it's other people that are the most important. So I argue instead that we need a theory of person value. And person value kind of develops from Bourdieu's ideas, but moves them beyond metaphors of capital. And I've written about that elsewhere, and I'm not going to explain it. So to conclude... I want to answer my own question. Yes, there's lots beyond capital. It may try to get us, but we may escape. There are many areas that cannot be completely colonised by what I call cal capital calculation and, at the moment, cruel conservatism. There are lots of protests against, cap against capital's logic. There are values beyond value. And even, and again, I could have written a whole paper on this, um, economists have started admitting all their mistakes, and there's lots of them, but these are my kind of favourites. Well, they're not favourites, they're, they're really horror stories, actually. The fact that the economists, and the guys who um, was the head of the IMF, the whole of our austerity politics are based upon an admitted mistake. They admitted that it was a spreadsheet error. We have people using food banks, we have people starving, we have the disabled being thrown out of their houses, we have bedroom tax on the basis of a spreadsheet error. I think that is just absolutely horrific. And what's interesting is that the people who are now seen to be the radical economists and their books are selling by the million uh, are people like Taleb who talks about fragility. Or interestingly, another Nobel Prize. 
Gary Sh no, Richard Schiller's book. He didn't get the Nobel Prize just for this book, but this is part of his history and trajectory for a book called Irrational Exuberance. And there's a great article at the moment in Bloomberg where new, they're called new economists, are now returning to understanding, sorry, understandings of values. But interestingly, if you look into all this, they're using <laughs> mechanisms of neuroeconomics to prove that altruism exists. Right, just read anthropology, guys, the whole history out there. So, I need to end on an up note, like optimism of the wolf kind of thing, because I think it's important, because otherwise we will be trapped in disenchantment and despair. So, we may be disenchanted, alienated, and experience enemy, but we also experience joy, wonder, or love. I think effective moments that were once pushed to that which was, you know, without value. Come back to haunters, come back to haunt capital. They disrupt it, they block it, they don't enable a line of light to proceed very easily. And I think these effective moments enable us to resist the logic and its disenchantments. They dissemble our assemblages and they set us in the direction of that which has not yet been captured. And I think, as sociologists, we have a duty not to just reproduce the logic of capital in everything we analyse, not just to assume that everything is commodified, and, not just, and I think most importantly, not to assume that we internalise the imperatives of capital. If you look at a lot of theories, there's a kind of assumption that we internalise these things. And I want to argue we don't. We really don't. And I think it is the responsibility of sociologists to look for those moments to find those places where we challenge and to actually turn that into sociology, not just reproduce in the economic domain. Thank you. Questions from the floor, please. Uh, yep, the person halfway up on the right there, please. With the scarf. Thanks very much. I thought that was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> and um, maybe listening to you, I've realised why I'm quite relieved I haven't done a PhD in sociology because I just don't think I could keep up. So, I mean, if the whole room is packed with sociologists, I'm apologising in advance. Um, I thought that talk was great, and I came here to be um, given a bit of optimism, having delved into the art market this week and felt totally depressed about the fact that everyone seems to think the market must leave the art world, and that's the only thing we can do. I suppose my only question to you, and it is quite a massive question, is that, um, although I agree... Um, that, that, that we must experience joy, wonder and love. There's a, is there not a risk of discussing that here in London when, you know, we, um, or, or in the UK, in the north, in, in, the, in the global north, I suppose, to, to be crude, when there are people um, living in slum conditions or in great poverty who might say, well, it's all very well for you to say that, but you've got public, you know, you might be a bit miserable, but you've got public, you know, your problems are kind of minor. And those are relatively minor and those are um, and I, I noticed your example of 
groups of people who, I can't remember, the, the, they seem to be people maybe somewhere living in more traditional societies who have ways of um, um, experiencing joy and talking against, I think you said, talking against injustice. And I certainly know from case studies in Angola where I've lived that there are um, women who come together to fight against the economic injustices that they experience. And that's very heartening. But, but I suppose I, what I'm trying to say is, as politely as I can, there's an element to this which I suppose feels possibly a, a sort of slightly na naive. Can I, can I dare say that? Slightly kind of... Um, without sort of looking at the, really the horrors that people have to live through, can, can they also experience joy, wonder and love? I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Oh, well, I, I do want to think they can. And I think if they didn't, they wouldn't be able to often live those conditions. Because I think we have to understand how people make the horror livable. Uh, and I think we can't just study despair all the time. We know about despair. We can see despair all around us. So even though we are in incredibly privileged positions in the north in comparison to some other areas, I think if we just studied, say, food banks, I mean, those to me are sites of horrific despair at the moment. We're one of the richest, seventh richest country in the world, and there's 3,200 3, food banks in this country. So... It really it is actually a, a very pessimism of, the, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will um, position. And I think what I'd look to anthropologists to see is that they do identify these moments. Or people like um, Abdul Malik Simone in Jakarta, they do identify these moments where people do break through and they have to make like, life livable. Now, in a northern example, when Vic and I were doing the research, I was doing an interview where these guys were talking about um, using heroin, all the, the friends they'd lost, everybody who died. It was just like this bleak, bleak picture of death, really. Um, and they lived, all the mines have been closed down, so there's no work and whatever else. It was just bleak. And then they suddenly switched register and they went, well, you've got to have a laugh, though, don't you? And it was almost as if the only way they could live such bleak and despairing lives was to find those moments of joy. You know, to, to kind of... And when people say, oh, I don't know why people go out and get completely drunk and they're badly behaved, well, it's like, have you ever tried living their lives? You know, it's that kind of... It's, so I, I, I accept the critique, but I think you've got to look for those moments. I really do. Thank you. Uh, the person at the back has had his hand up for quite a while. Just there. Yep. Thank you for this speech. My name is Alcina Jeffers. And this, I've been coming here for some, quite some time now, and it's the first time I get a chance to ask a question. And I just want to say thank you for being here, because <laughs> what you're saying is what we've been fighting for in the UK here since the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000. We now are 13. Yep. All those tents have passed. So just say thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And yeah, I agree. It's, like, I, it, it's not a straightforward progress narrative by any sense. You know, I think we're reliving the 80s in the most horrific form. And we look, you know, look at work, like turbo tailorism or everybody's, minutes of everybody's everyday life is controlled. So I actually think conditions are getting worse, but we have to keep fighting. Thank you. 
Okay, uh, the guy with the glasses, just there, please. Um, hi. Um, my question is, um, you've, I mean, your idea about the person value, I find it very good, very admirable. But uh, because my background is uh, accounting, so business economics, my question is, um, if you're just being focusing on the person value, right, is that a sort of alternative to the capitalist idea, capitalist neoliberalism idea? Um, what I'm saying is that um, if you're just focusing on the joy and then, uh, I mean, uh, the, the good stuff, and then you're just, you know, you're not working hard enough, you're not putting any labor, would that do any good to the society? Would that, would that do any good to yourself? I mean, um, if you're not, uh, yeah, basically, if you're, if you're not doing anything and then you're just, you know, focusing on the good stuff, on the social stuff, um, is that, is that, would that contribute positively to the society? Okay. I mean, the idea of person value is quite a complex development of Bourdieu where it's looking at rather than seeing people as um, consolidations of capital, the metaphors that he uses, we can understand that, but we look at how people are not forced to play the game that he describes. So they have other values. They have other ways of accruing value to themselves. It's a big debate about how that happens and how value struggles take place. And so I don't think it does. I've been quite careful not to reduce it to the logic of capital. And it's trying to take the domain, it's trying to make the domain of values um, register as much more significant than the domain of value. So maybe I should have called it person values. That might actually be a very good idea. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not really, I'm not really arguing that we just look to moments of joy <laughs> at all. I say we look, at, we look to moments of joy because all we can do if we look at this history is see exclusions, injustice, people who aren't allowed to be seen as people, people who are only used for their labour, who only, um, or, or who's, people whose unpaid labour is increasingly encroached upon to produce value for capital. So I think there's a very big difference between the workings of capital and the workings of sociality. And I don't think what, you know, it's a really, it would be a big debate. I'm not saying that everything that's social has to be fun. I'm saying that when capital encroaches into everything, we have to look at what it cannot commodify and monetize. But, uh, you, you would agree that labor is actually one of the, the values as a person, as a human being. Labor is also like, you know, um, one of the things that you have to do, one of the most, um, one of the uh, uh, crucial uh, part of human being. Yeah, 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 I'd agree with that. But some people have to labour in the most horrific conditions and some people don't. And I think we need to look at how labour is organised and how it operates and not assume it's just one factor in a calculation. Labour's about living and we have to work out how people can live. And if you look at things like European uh, working hours, I mean, they're just horrific, absolutely horrific. Do we need to live like that? Um, and do we need, you know, to generate a whole market in global migrant domestic service whereby middle-class women in this country are pulled into work and in order to do that work they have to 
force women from migra migrant women to actually leave their own children behind. You know, there's something really, really wrong, I think, where migrant women, domestic workers, actually have families in other parts of the world and they have to leave those families to become a source of labour to middle-class women who go out to labour. You know, we need to understand all those elements of a value chain and that's not about, that's about how we understand a good life, what it is to have and be a person in the world. Bev, there are a few hands up. Would you mind taking about three questions together? Is that okay? So can we start the, the chap at the back, please, with D, with the specs, just on the edge. And if you can show your hands, I'll try and go around. Thank you. Um, closing a lecture with a statement that, uh, logic, that sociology's duty or sociological duties to resist the logic, uh, basically uh, inherently state, states that sociology shouldn't, should take the logic part of it, the, the second part Sorry, of it. Can, can you say that again? We, can't, we can't hear you down here. Sorry, can you hear me now? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, stating that uh, sociological duties to resist the logic is basically uh, cutting out the, the logical part of the sociology, hence it states socio, without logical. Hence, um, the making such a, taking such a direction is basically making sociology not a science anymore. And that kind of extreme position makes sociology almost like a, just a, a atheist alternative to religion rather than really a science. I, 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 I'm actually, I'm an ex-student of sociology. I left sociology partially because of that kind of approach, facing that kind of approach. And I just wonder whether you'll be prepared, in fact, instead, to, to, to work together with economists to make a, some kind of system that is more acceptable to, to humanity, humanity, but not necessarily resisting and taking complete opposite, like uh, antagonistic position. That doesn't, that won't work, I think. Okay, thank you. Uh, Judy Weissman. things that you um, threw out because I was really interested. You know, you talked about everything being financialised and marketised and one of the examples you used was friendship and I was hoping you'd say a bit more about that and maybe link it to the discussions that you, I know you're well aware of about digital labour now and the fact that you're right, on the one hand a lot of the labour that on the internet is financialised and monetised. On the other hand it's creative, satisfying, voluntarily kind of given and so with all these cases we've got a very sort of subtle contradictory kind of relationship going on and there were just moments where I thought it was sort of you were on the bleak you know too much on the kind of bleak with the, um, the financialization so I wonder if you could just say a little bit more around those themes anyway I'd love to hear. Yeah so those two together. Um, I think it's interesting in terms of economics and sociology because sociology is a very, very open, uh, Catholic, interestingly, to use the religious reference, um, discipline. It usually recruits people from all over the place. Um, and so it's not completely tied. If you look at the history of the research assessment exercise, we don't have very specific journals that we have to publish in. It's pretty open, it's pretty creative in lots of ways. If you look at economics, you have to be a game theorist to be entered for the ref. 
It's a closed discipline. You'd never get a job in an economics department as a sociologist. And when I was at Manchester, they got rid of all the economic historians in the economics department because they were going to pull down their score. So I think if we're talking about different disciplines speaking to each other, I think there's an openness and there's a closeness. And I also think a lot of that is about connection to government, connection to capital. Uh, so I think that's that. I think for me, yes, it would be great. It would be great. You know, th the fact that somebody, I just couldn't believe it, the fact there's two Nobel Peace, not Peace, uh, two Nobel Prize winners for kind of pointing out the bloody obvious is, is just quite <laughs> remarkable to me. It's like £880,000. Why don't they give it to, you know, sociologists or feminist theorists who pointed out that, you know, irrationality is not, cannot be separated out, you know. It's like, there's loads of really good stuff on this. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't kind of take that one lying down. Now, um, <laughs> in really important point, I mean, most of those areas that I've started looking at are, are about that really contradictory capture. So even something like caring and domestic work, and hence the definition caring about and caring for, even that kind of captures people love looking after their children. You know, so that's kind of the genius is that something like capital can make sure that people remain unpaid for that, that people will do it willingly and that people will invest in themselves in digital labour in order to make themselves more lucrative, like Paul DeGay's research. So, yeah, it, I think it's a contradiction, but I don't think it's one of those contradictions that will explode capital. Um, I think it's a contradiction that capital can very, very effectively make use of. So I think, I think you're yeah, on the money with that one. <laughs> um, yeah. There are two hands there. There's a guy with a stripy shirt and a woman just behind him. So, you know, the, any order. Hi. Um, basically, my question is about, well, I, I guess um, it's about how one would go about resisting the monetization of our lives and the capitalization of our lives. And what I want to ask is how, where science and technology figure in this sort of resistance. Um, I mean, classically, in sort of, you know, radical thought going back to Marx, technology was ultimately a means, of, a method of emancipation from the demands of labor. Whereas, what I, and I want to ask whether you are in that camp or whether you're in a camp that thinks resisting the monetization of our lives is also about resisting technology and, si and science and technology. I mean, you said something about Facebook being a way of monetizing friendship, when perhaps the, another way of arguing about, of talking about it, would be that technology actually serves to enhance social relationships. For example, Skype and think video conferencing allows people to communicate across very large, long distances where they might otherwise have been unable to and enjoy a more fulfilling personal relationship when distance is in the way, say someone has to go to another country to work or something. So I guess that's, that's, my, that's my question. Mm. And I think really good point. Marx was completely um, in love with technology and thought it was a solution um, to liberation. I don't agree. I don't agree. I think it's precisely that, that doubling that occurs a lot of the time where it offers great benefits, but it may also... Um, absolutely offer some horrific things. So, you know, if you think about the development of the internet, I mean, that was, that's been primarily funded by uh, the arms industry and pornography. You know, kind of technology can't be that good, really. Um, but we learn to use it. We learn to make it work for us. 
in various different ways. And as Celia points out, Celia Lurie, you know, it works us as well. And I think we've got to work out when the technology, you know, literally our hands and our arms and our eyes and things, the, how we use technology, how we are subject to it and how we resist it. And I don't think it's a complete internalisation. And I, I've only just begun the project on friendships. Um, and so I don't really know what happens there. I began it thinking I could get the algorithms and work out how they did it, but to buy an algorithm is nearly three million pounds, so it wasn't going to happen. So if anybody would like to sign up to my research project, please do. I'd, I'd be very, very grateful if you use Firefox. We need, we're going to use a plug-in on the Firefox browser to find out what Facebook takes off you in your friendships. But um, yes, uh, I'd love people to get involved in that, and we could probably, in three years' time, I might have a better answer. Next question, please. Thank you for an excellent lecture. Um, I, um, agree, I agree with your political analysis wholeheartedly, but what I am finding quite hard to get my head around is the kind of analytic framework that you're applying to the study of value and values. It, uh, I mean, so far, my understanding is that you're um, kind of setting up the dichotomy in a kind of in a, in a set of dichotomies, values and value, sociology and economics, and you're doing away with a distinction between the normative and kind of subjective experience of value. Um, and the bit that I am finding difficult to um, kind of um, internalise is the idea that, that there isn't value inherent in capital, that there isn't a, a, an assumptive world to understand in the other and, and, in, and in those um, spheres of life that, um, um, that, that you kind of demonise through the political analysis. I, th I think there's a risk in, in the dichotomies that you set up that you kind of valorise, idealise the working class and simplify um, exploitation when actually there are some quite complex value, there's quite some quite com complex values work that's going on in, in those domains? Yeah, I'm sure there is. <laughs> I'm sure there is, and I think part of, the, um, part of my desire to study this further is to understand those complexities, to understand the chains, to understand the connections, to understand the breaks, the potential, the possibilities, or not. So, most definitely. Uh, there are, I can see three hands. Can we speed through the, 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 these three together then, please? Uh, first the guy, the four rows back, right in the corner. Right. Uh, hi. Uh, well, first, thanks for the presentation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but I was interested in how do you account the work of the, like Deleuze in, in terms of, uh, of, of how capitalism, like, um, well, and, and Bourdieu as well, how, how capitalism shapes in some ways the, the mind and, and especially Deleuze in terms of, of desire and how can that uh, be a problem to like this emancipatory project that you have and if you have any ideas how we could like uh, try to fight that in some ways. That, thank you. Oh, well, I, th I think you're right. I mean, what, um, not here, but in the Class Self Culture book, I kind of go through all the different theories that just work with the logic of capital. So if you think about our new, like the new series of um, sociological 
theories of subjectivity, or even Deleuze, who's not a, a sociologist, or Bourdieu, they all, like the uh, theories of individualization, the reflexive self, the mobile self, the prosthetic self, the possessed self, all these theories, the neoliberal self, all these theories assume internalization. All of them assume internalization. Deleuze, Bourdieu, they all assume it. I mean, I think Deleuze does more interesting things via a libidinal economy, but there is an assumption there. And there is an assumption that, you know, the desire for wealth is, is the drive, or in Bourdieu, the game-playing theory. You know, there's, there's thousands of them. I mean, that's what's interesting, is that the kind of... Uh, a lot of the sociological theories of the self are about the accruing... Um, game-playing, kind of advancing future-pointing self. And I think my point is to point out that um, actually a lot of people are not like that. And I would make a very particular crit critique of governmentality. So say in reality TV, all the theories of reality TV that don't uh, interview audiences assume that governmentality works. Well, in fact, our audience research showed that governmentality is a theory of the bourgeoisie, speaking to the bourgeoisie, talks about propriety, and talks in a way that the people it's meant to address don't even understand. So I'd want to say, let's look to see where these theories don't work, where they cannot be applied. And I think we might actually advance what we've got and call sociology. Okay, and there was a question at the front here. We can go as quickly as possible now, please. We're running out of time. I wanted to ask where the spreadsheet error came from, because I've heard about it vaguely, but I don't know <laughs> chapter and verse. I wonder if you could tell us. Uh, right, I've got it here. Actually, do I, well, we'll have another question. The, the guy ah, right in the middle it. here has been It's the waiting. Harvard economist Carmen Reinhart and Ken Rogoff who originally framed the argument that too high a debt-to-GDP ratio will always necessarily lead to economic contraction, and who had aggressively promoted it during Rogoff's tenure as chief economist for the IMF. It was reported, I think I've got the website where it was reported, in April 2013. Um, where they admit it was a spreadsheet error and um, George Osborne is interviewed on the BBC admitting to it. Dis discovered by PhD students, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Discovered by PhD students, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Go in the middle, please. Uh, hi, thank you very much for your, uh, for your lecture. Um, I just wanted to, was interested to know what you think about the, um, you talked a lot about the capitalisation and, and the, the dangers of, of that for the individual, it seemed to be, but I was wondering what you might think about the the dangers more for society in the sense that, um, so I'm a teacher, secondary school teacher, and I worry a lot about the fact that a lot of my kids um, seem to have no idea of any of the things that you're talking about, and I worry a lot that, um, uh, which I think oh, is... It's a, I you, think, it's yeah. your job. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but um, I worry a lot that, that none of us have any idea, really, of what the, the ethical implications of our actions are because of the, the detachment that capitalised capitalism makes between us and the consequences of our actions um, and so for the individual it seems that we are to a certain extent able to uh, you know we, we look after ourselves but then this global capitalization which is mainly about tying everyone in, in, in through debt means that we are trapped into this system of doing things that if we really knew what the consequences were we wouldn't do and I was wondering what your thoughts were on that yes <laughs> well I do think debt is one of the you know 
the best tricks of capital make interest out of people's discontents and desires I mean it really does like who could have thought of that it's kind of brilliant and the, well not brilliant again it's kind of a horror story and David Graeber's book if people in here haven't read it you should it's a brilliant book on debt really 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 good or just watch his interview on Bloomberg if you haven't seen it again really really good it's, it's, that's a despairing question, isn't it? It's kind of what are the ethical implications of one's actions? It's always very hard to know when we're doing it. I think what I take heart from is a lot of this anthropological or sociological research that looks at how people grow up with a sense of justice, grow up, you know, anti-instrumental. And they may be young now, but somebody is transmitting those values. Uh, it's not coming from the media. It's certainly not coming from reality TV, you know, one of the biggest explosions. But, interestingly, the people who were watching it were very, very anti the humiliation, cruelty um, that was purported and the kind of, you know, monetize yourself policy. And they'll be spreading that back down to their children. So I think there is something that, that people do learn ethical values and they don't learn it from the ideological state apparatuses. So maybe that's, you know, that's the way we see it, I hope. But anthropology would suggest, yeah. But yeah, keep at it. I'll be told off for running over, but one more question and that, that'll be it. Thank you so much for this lecture. It's always really empowering and liberating to think about how pervasive and colonizing capitalism can be. So I was just wondering what can we do now about it now that we're talking in LSE, which is one of the most capitalized university in the UK and in the world. I mean, if you look at the fees to enter this university, it just literally puts barriers to most students and some would be some of the brighter minds in this country. So what do we do now? Well, you could go to another university. <laughs> <laughs> I get a go to it. <laughs> I mean, people are paying for the brand, aren't they? Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's all sorts of ways in which people are kind of capitalising themselves by being here. But <laughs> I'm hoping they'll get an education at the same time. So I think, what do we do? Well, there's loads of things we have to do. To, you know, there's like massive lists of all the things that we do. And a lot of them we don't know that we're going to do them. There was a moment when um, the students rioted. Well, they didn't riot, did they? They protested. It was, it's the riots that rioted. Uh, when the student protests occurred over fees, nobody could have predicted that. Nobody knew that was going to happen. So I think things do kind of, you know... Uh, occur, they, what's it, they bubble below the surface. And I think what's, what's been interesting from a lot of my research, there's a lot of people walking around with a lot of resentments about injustice. A hell of a lot. And it takes certain things to make that kind of change things. And I, I do think if, you know, if we want to stop the line of flight of capital, we do actually have to work out ways of resisting it. And there's lots of lines. There's many, many lines. It says here, please mention book sale and signing, so I have. And, uh, that wasn't me. That really wasn't me. <laughs> but thank you, Bev. That was wonderful.